Hey, listen, I am really excited today. One is I, we just had a great morning of worship so far. Um, and today it's like, it's like when you read a really good book and you get to the end of the book and you're just so excited that you end up staying up way late to read the rest of the book. Some of you are looking at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. Stop. It's like you're binge watching a really cool show. And you get so excited that you stay up to watch three episodes at the end of the day when you're so tired, but you just, listen, this is the feeling I have right now because today we wrap up our series. We are talking long story short, and we started this back on September. If that's the feeling I have now, just think what I'm going to have come June next year when we start in January. Anyway, we started this back in early September. We started looking at these signposts. And remember, the reason we started looking at these signposts is because what we were trying to do is figure out the story of Scripture. It's not about us, right? God is the author, and the story is, is, is an autobiography. It's about Him and the way that He loves us, the way that He pursues us, the way that He interacts with us. He is the main character of this story, and, and we just find ourselves woven in the story. But this is all about Him. Right? And so we've been looking at these signposts along the way, starting with the fact that God exists. And as we've walked through these signposts, we've been kind of starting to understand the story of Scripture better. I hope. It's been the goal. Right? To understand how God is constant and unchanging. We've been working to understand how God loves us and the steps and lengths he goes to redeem those that he loves, which is us. We've been talking about the marriage between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how, how, how God is over all of it. And really what we're trying to do in this is to make sure that we have a biblical worldview. We've talked about this before, right? But a, a biblical worldview is simply, you think a worldview is just like glasses that you would use. It's a lens that you would see things through. If you have a biblical worldview, that means you view the world, you view life through this lens of God's word. God's word dictates how you see the things around you, right? It's a biblical worldview. An anti-biblical worldview is somebody that says, you know what? The Bible is just not true. That would be a, a biblical worldview that was anti-Bible, that would say the Bible is false. And you would think that it would be clear enough, right? That as Christians, what we would have is we would have biblical worldviews and people outside the church would have anti-biblical worldviews and it would be clear as day. The problem is that what most Christians have, I'd venture to say some of us in this room, some of us watching online, what, what a lot of Christians will struggle with is this thing called a confused worldview. And a confused worldview is where we take the Bible and we say, yeah, the Bible's true, but because we don't know it as well as we should, we end up incorporating a lot of other things with it as well, right? We, we, we take the guy that we watched on YouTube that sounded pretty smart and what he said sounded good. So we're going to include that in with the Bible and what I know, right? My, my high school teachers and my college teachers that are so sure they're right about things and teach with such passion, I'm going to take what they say and I'm going to bring it in and I'm going to include it. And anything that sounds good, I'm going to bring it. Even pithy things I see on Facebook and Instagram, I'm going to bring those in because they must be right. And we, we start developing our own worldview. It's got some biblical, but it's got a lot of other stuff. And we kind of put it all together in this ball and this is what we end up with. 
And it's a confused view. And as we understand these signposts, hopefully we start to see through some of those things. We see who God is. We see what he's called us to. We see how he's pursued us and why it's happened. Right? The goal when we study the word of God is to become closer to God. And, and the outpouring of that is that we, we have a biblical worldview. We view things through the lens of God's word. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And that's why we've tackled these signposts. Right? And if you'll indulge me, we're going we're gonna to spend a minute here and, and we're just going to review this quickly so we're, we're on the same page as we get to the end. The consummation of all things. We started with just looking at the fact that God is real. In the beginning, God. We said God is real and God is knowable. And, and then we, we started to look at, and this God who is real and is knowable, he by himself created everything. Was it a long, long time ago or just a long time ago? I don't care. He created everything by himself on purpose for a purpose. And he created it perfect. And the pinnacle of that creation were Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed him. Ushering in the fall of mankind, sin enters the world and breaks it completely. But even though the world is broken, God doesn't abandon us. And we see through the story of Noah and the ark and, and, and God promising to his people not to destroy the earth in such a way. And, and we see through the call of Abraham that God is providing this hope of future redemption. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to create an, an entire nation out of you that's going to bless the world. He, he promises this seed of hope. And over generations, we see that that, that seed of hope becomes the Israelites who find themselves in slavery in, in Egypt. But God sends Moses to lead them through the exodus out of Egypt as one nation together. And then they get, uh, they get to the mountain and God says, here, on this mountain, you as the nation of Israel, I'm going to enter into a covenant commitment with you. That if you obey me, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. If you obey me and follow me, it will go well with you. And then he leads them to the promised land. And on that trip, man, they have times where they disobey and God gives them discipline and punishment. And there are times when they obey and God blesses them abundantly. And finally, they enter into the land and they conquer it. And they go home, the home God promised Abraham so long ago. They go in and they establish themselves. But once they get established, they do stupid. They do dumb. And they enter into this cycle of the judges, right? They rebel against God. They're punished. They repent. They live right. And they get comfortable and they rebel against God. And they're punished and they repent. And then they get comfortable. And the cycle goes on and on. And finally, they say, we don't want to do this cycle anymore. God, give us a king. Give us a king that'll tell us what to do. And God says, you don't want that. But they persist and say, yes, God, we want a king. So God says, fine, I'll give you what you ask for. And he gives them a king. And throughout their history as a united nation and then as a divided nation, they have a couple of good kings, a couple of godly kings that lead them well. But by and large, their kings are evil just like God warned them they would be. 
They're evil and they lead them astray and they lead them to worshiping false gods. And because God loves them, he sends prophets. His spokesman. A prophet is someone who hears from God and then speaks it to the people. Right? He speaks to people on God's behalf. And so God sent prophets because he loves them and because they're going astray and because they're doing exactly what they were told not to do and because they're ruining themselves. God sends prophets to say, stop it. Come back to God. And the prophets always tell us about two things. This future day when a Messiah would come, a king that would set things right. And then a future day when that king would return and would fix everything with finality. And what the prophets spoke about came to be with the coming of the Messiah, that moment that kicked off Advent where God pulls back the curtain and steps into human history, born, as David said, as, we were leading, as he was leading worship, born um, as a humble child in a manger. And as he lives perfectly, Fully God, fully man. He deserves no wrath, yet he takes on wrath. And our hope of redemption is realized in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death counting for us. His resurrection giving righteousness to us. And as he goes, as he is ascended to heaven, Pastor David covered this last week, as he is ascended to heaven, he says, listen, now I'm leaving you through the power of the Holy Spirit, my church, and your job, church, is to tell everybody about me. Right? To spread this message about me, to share the gospel here, there, all over the world, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like I told you. He said, and I'll be with you. I'll give you power to do this. And those are the signposts. Until we get to this one, the end. It was actually supposed to say consummation, but it wouldn't fit on the screen. So forgive me. We get to the end. Now, this is the only signpost that happens in the future. Everything else we can look backwards and we can see it happen. We could see it play out in Scripture. And as we check historically, we can see that it's happened historically as well. We can test those things. We can prove them. But we get to this one. And this is future. Right? This is one that we take not on historicity, But this is one we understand through faith. Now remember, the Bible is the only holy book with God as its author. There are a lot of religions with a lot of holy books. But the Bible is the only one with God as its author. This is a God who exists outside of time. This is a God who sees everything laid out in front of him as a book. The future to him is the same as the past. So when we say this one looks ahead, it looks ahead for us. It does not look ahead for God. And we can trust it. Right? We can trust it because 
Every other prophecy that God has spoken has come to pass just as he said it would. One of the things that makes me understand, and, and I, hope, I hope it helps you too, one of the things that helps us understand that this is the word of God. That this is God's word to us. That this is not just one of many holy book options. This is the authentic word of God. The rest is counterfeit. Is simply this. This is the only holy book. Right? This is the only holy book that actually tells us what's going to happen before it happens. And then it actually happens. Right? Other holy books can't do that because God's not their author. They don't even try. They might tell you what's going to happen at the very end of the world, but who's going to be there to fact check them? Right? Nobody but us. So here's the thing, right? We have confidence that what God says at the end will come to pass because every prophecy in the word of God has proven to be true. And and so we know that the next prophecy will prove to be true. And so we get here to this point at the end. And here's what we know. Christ came once as a savior, born in a manger. To die is propitiation. It's a fancy theological word. Pull it out on Christmas Eve. To die is a propitiation for our sin, right? Substitute. And to give us his righteousness in return. And we know that he's coming again. Not as a, as a child in a manger, but as a conquering warrior king. And he is coming to set things right. This is the end. Let's look. This is the moment. John is is talking about this in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, here's what he says. Then I saw heaven opened. And what John is seeing is not a picture of something that might happen. What John is seeing is a future event as it happens. He is taken from where he is and he is transported spiritually and he is looking at a future event that will unfold, right? It's like he's seeing it out of time, right? What he is witnessing is not a picture of something that might happen. It's what actually happens. Then I saw heaven opened. Man, I want to see that. What would that be like? You're just sitting there, and then like, oh, like how many times have we wondered, where is heaven? You know, what's going on in heaven? Well, John's going to see it open, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider was named Faithful and True, because he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. This is King Jesus in Revelation 19 coming back. This is, this is the end. He comes back. We, we keep reading in Revelation 19, and listen to me. For those on the earth that do not know him, it ain't going to be pretty. He will speak and it'll be as if a sword comes out of his mouth and he will slaughter the enemy and he will defeat sin and evil once and for all. And then we know two things happen with definitiveness. We know that two things are going to happen after he comes in victory. I'm going to read to you 1 through 8, Revelation 21. You can follow along just a little bit on the screen or go ahead and open up Bibles uh, in the chairs in front of you if you don't have one. Use your computer, whatever you do. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. 
For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And you can pick up on the screen. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all of these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and are all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now look, there's something I want to tell you today. I'm so excited to read about the end. And I'm also so heartbroken. Can I tell you, these are words I wish were not in Scripture. I just want to level with you. Um, I mean, some of them. I want some of them to be there, that part about the new heavens and the new earth and wiping away every tear and no more pain. Like, oh, yes, the blessings, victory. Yeah, bring it on. The, the part about the second death. The part about the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Listen to me. I hate it. I don't know any Bible-believing, God-fearing follower of Christ who doesn't hate this. But I also don't know any... I don't know any way around it. The Bible is the absolute and true word of God. We've looked at the signposts. We've seen the prophecy come through every time. We know that these are God's word and they are for us and they are true. We know that God is unchangeable and does not change his mind. And so while I hate telling you this is true, I don't have a choice. This is the absolute word of God. We know two things will happen at the end. He will return as king. He will defeat evil. And then we know two things. He will make all things new. And there will be a judgment. And the judgment is what we need to be ready for. And the judgment is what we need to get people ready for. We read about it in Revelation 20. This is John writing. He says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. And the books were opened, including the book of life. Two sets of books, right? There's the books, and then there's the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. As, get this, recorded in the books. That's important. We'll get there. The dead are judged according to what they've done in the books. 
And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is, this is a, a somber moment in human history. This is the consummation, right, of this story, right? There is a great white throne, purity and righteousness represented in it. There is a great white throne, and the one sitting on it is God Almighty, And he pulls out the books, and we are going to be judged. And there are two sets. There are the books of life, and then there is the book of life. This is how we we understand these two books, right? Um, The first is a book of deeds. And when it's your turn to be judged at the great white throne judgment, here's what will happen. God will take your book of your life and he will open it up and your life will be examined. What did you do? Were you, because it's Christmas time, naughty or nice? Did you do good? Did you do bad? And everything will be weighed. Were you a good person? Were you not a good person? How, how will that work out for you? And you know, when we start talking about this, when the book of your life is opened up and God uses that book to determine your eternal destination, some of you are thinking, well, you know what? That might not be bad. I'm a decent person, right? Some of you are thinking, all right, I could do that. And can I tell you, that's cultural Christianity at its finest, Cultural Christians, man, the people that tell you, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. They don't know anything about the Bible. Their worldview is so confused, they have no idea, but they know about Christ, right? They, they know the story of Christmas. They know the story of Easter, and here's what they say. They tell me all the time. We heard Patty, bless her, at, at her baptism say, this is what I used to believe, right? That if you believe in God and you're a good person, then when you die, you go to heaven, And I would venture to to bet that there are some of you here that are banking on that very thing. You're like, I believe in God. I'm not a bad person. Therefore, I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. And there will be a lot of people like that at this great white throne judgment. And God will bring out the book of their life and they will go, yes, my life was pretty good. Right? They think of it like scales. Right? Like, like there was that one time I lied. I shouldn't lie. Lying is bad. But there were all those times I was honest. Right? And I'm a decent person. Right? I'm a pretty good dad. Shut up. (laughs) I said shut up at church. I mean, I'm a good dad. I've never even punched anybody except for my brother, and that doesn't count. Right? I'm a good guy. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Right? I help people. Like, I'm looking at my life and I'm going, it should be all right. And there's a lot of people that think that's how their eternal destination is going to be decided. Good guys go to heaven. Bad guys go to hell. And we can always find somebody worse than us. 
right? We can always find somebody worse than us. But the reality is this. When he opens the book of life and he looks at your deeds, listen, your deeds are a testimony against you. Because if you think about the scale, you have nothing on the positive side and everything on the negative. No matter how good you think you are, you have nothing on the positive side. See, and I want you to track this because this is weird. And, and some of you know this. Some of you know the gospel. You know it inside and out. And you're saying, okay, Matt, I get this. Move on. But some of you, you need to hear me. Remember the signpost of the fall? When God made us perfect and Adam and Eve jacked it all up. You remember that? That broke us. It put a defect in every human being to be born. And the defect is sin. And the sin poisons everything. Even the good things that you think you do are poisoned by sin. I I was trying to think of the best way, because we know non-Christians that do good things from a worldly perspective. And so I was trying to think of the best way to help you understand this. And and I don't know if this is going to work or if this is going to fall apart, but darn it, we're going to try it. Think of a good Samaritan who is carrying um, a virus. It's not the coronavirus. It's another virus. Um, Think of a good Samaritan who is carrying a virus that is 100% deadly to anybody that catches it. Right? Can you picture that? Right? For, for some reason, it's fine in them, but it's 100% deadly to anybody else that they, they transmit it to. And they come across a horrific wreck. Well, they're a good person. What are they going to do? They're going to help. So they rush in and they bandage. And then there's this person not breathing and they give mouth to mouth to save them. Right? And then there's this person bleeding out. So they, they because apparently in this example, they know how to do this. They rig up a, a, a little field thing where they can take blood and, and transfuse it into the person. Right? They're doing good. They're doing the best good they can. But because of what's in them, even their good is horrific because mouth to mouth kills, blood transfusions in this example, kill like everything good that they're doing amounts to evil. Not because that's what they meant to do, but because it's what's in them. And this is what it's like when sin is in us. Right? That's why Isaiah says, Isaiah, one of the best men in scripture, the naked prophet, We talked about that way back in that week. You'll have to go back and listen. But why Isaiah says, man, all of my best, all of my human righteousness, man, it is like filthy rags. Why can he say that? Because he's infected with sin. We all are. That's what Romans 3.23 tells us, man, the wages of sin, they are death. No, I'm sorry, I lied. Romans 3.23 says, everybody has sin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages for that sin is death. 
right? And so when we get to this judgment and the book of your life is opened and you're thinking scales, man, the part that says, let me into heaven has nothing on it. And the part that says, I am eternally doomed and separated from God is weighed down so much that the scale breaks. Anybody counting, listen to me. This is what I need you to hear. I need you to hear it. Anybody counting on their goodness to earn their spot in heaven with God, in this new heaven, in this new earth, they are mistaken. And they will be tragically disappointed on that day. But there's good news, right? And the good news is that there's another option, right? According to what they will be judged, according to what they've done is recorded in the books. But there's a second book. The second book is called the book of life. This is what the word tells us. Anybody whose name is not found in the the book of life will be thrown in to the lake of fire. See, there's a second book. This is the good news, the great news. This is the gospel news that Jesus Christ has come to pay the penalty that you are due. Because when your life is opened, all sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are death. And when your book is opened, you deserve hell. You can fight it. You can deny it. You can say, that's not fair. I've heard it all. But frankly, none of it matters because God is the judge and he has set the standard. No one is righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard and the wages for that sin is death. And so when your book is opened, you will be shown definitively that what you deserve is death. And then the book of life will be opened. And the question for you, the question for every soul that has ever lived is, will my name be found in the book of life? That is the gospel message. That is the offer of Jesus Christ. That is the point, right? That is the plan of redemption that he set forth in the garden after the fall. And we saw in the signpost how God was working and weaving his way through so that he could bring us to the point where we could make a decision about the risen Christ. Will we follow him? He was born in humility. He lived in humility. He died a sinner's death even though he didn't deserve it because we were worth it. You ever look in the mirror and you pull the Stuart Smalley? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, I've never even heard of that guy. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, God loves me. I added the last part. I changed it a little bit. I don't know if people like me or not, but darn it, God loves me. Right? And he sent, he said, he said I was worth it. And he sent his one and only son. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Listen, if you believe in 
Jesus and you follow Jesus, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And at the great white throne judgment, you have nothing to fear. Because when the books of your life are opened, you know what they're going to say? I took care of that. Jesus is going to have his initials written right there. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm making that part up, but it's going to be taken care of. Here's what I read, right? All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. So when it's time to open the books, right? And my life sucks, right? When you open it up, you're like, man, that's bad. That dude's going to hell. But that's when Jesus will announce to his father and the angels in heaven, no, he's mine. He's mine. And I got nothing to fear. This is, this is it in a nutshell. This is the whole point. I will announce before my Father and his angels that they belong to me. Listen, I can tell you with assuredness that I am a messy, broken person. And that if I was counting on my own righteousness to make me right with God, I would be a miserable failure. But I can tell you with confidence that on that day, I will have not a thing to fear. And it's not because I'm good. It's not because I did right. It's because Jesus Christ will say to our Father in heaven and the angels that are with him, He's mine. This is the invitation that's open to all of us. I just want to encourage you. Right? If you haven't if you haven't accepted that, it's no time like the present. It's open to everyone. But this is the culmination. This is the end. It's not really the end, it's the beginning. But it's also the end. It's the end of this age. And the beginning of a new one. Think of it like marriage, right? You know, as you, as you stand at the aisle, as you exchange vows, as you say, I do, and you're announced as, as husband and, and bride. That's over. And you're starting a new life now. Right? This is, this is the culmination. This is what it's been building to. And for those of us that are in the Lamb's book of life, for those of us, we get to attend. Listen to me. I want you to know, because it's going to be epic. We get to go to a party. I mean, there is like a whole eternity of awesomeness, but don't sleep on the party. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. Guys, we are the bride. When we get to go to the wedding feast of the Lamb, we are not going as guests. We are going as the bride of Christ. And we have been prepared, right? How have we been prepared? We've been washed in the blood. I know it sounds like, like weird, and I know it's extra Christian-y to say washed in the blood because we don't always understand what it means. Washed in the blood just simply means the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Because he died and bled for us, we are now made pure. We've been washed in the blood. 
And we've been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. Look, and the angel said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. These are true words that come from God. Listen, this is, this is a moment that we should be longing for. What do we do at weddings? We sit, we joke, we laugh, we tell stories, we party, right? We eat, we drink, we celebrate. In, in the ancient Middle East, wedding celebrations would go for a week, right? This is a picture of an epic celebration where we, the bride of Christ, are finally united with him for all of eternity. This, this is epic. And, and, and this is what we celebrate with communion, is this future day. And, and, and there's something, I, we're going to take communion together, but there's something I want to show you, if I can do it without spilling. It's iffy. There's something I want to show you, because there is some symbolism in communion that we don't always get to. Right? We know that the bread is his body that's broken for us. We know that the cup is his blood that is poured out for us. Right? He says, these are pictures of this that I'm about to do. And, and so when you take communion, you remember what I did and what I ushered you into. And all of that's good. All of that's right. But the symbolism goes deeper. And it's about marriage. Because here's what would happen. Um, in, in, in the ancient Middle East, still happens today at some point. But in the ancient Middle East, here's what would happen. When, when you wanted to enter into a marriage contract, you would get your dad. And you'd be like, Dad, I want that girl. Let's go. And, and you would get your dad and, and you would take your pitcher of wine. This is water. It's okay. Um, and you would take your pitcher of wine and, and you would go to the girl and her father. Um, and you would say, how you doing? And, and she would be like, how you doing? Um, and it would be awkward for a minute because we're awkward people. But then this is what would happen. The would-be groom would take the wine and would pour it in the cup. Nobody was confused about this. The, the symbolism was rich. Nobody was confused. And he would pour the, the wine into the cup and he would offer it to the girl he wanted to marry. If she took it and drank, then that would be an indication that she was on board and that she agreed to this union. If she refused it, then that sad little boy and his dad would go home. But if she took it and she drank, what she's saying is, yes, you will be mine and I will be yours. And that wasn't it, though. Because there was one last thing left to be decided. And that was something called the bride price. See, in a lot of cultures, there was something called a dowry. A dowry is when, when um, a woman was going to marry a man, the family would pay the man to take her. I mean, that, that's what it was. Because, because it would be an, an extra mouth to feed, an extra burden. There were going to be kids. So they would give money to the man. But God said, no, 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 not in my culture. That's not how we're doing it. It's not how we do it in my culture. Instead of a dowry, here's what I expect. I expect there to be something called a bride price. 
So it goes opposite to that. Instead of the, the bride's family paying the groom, what would happen is the groom would have to negotiate a bride price. I want to marry her. She agrees and wants to marry me. All that's left is for us to negotiate the bride price. What will I pay? What will I give to show my seriousness that I will love, honor, and cherish this woman? And the bride price was negotiated. So here's what I want you to understand. As, as Jesus sat around the table with his disciples, he's about to die. And he's sharing, he's sharing the, uh, uh, the Passover meal with them, what we know as the Lord's Supper. He starts by showing them the bread. And he says, look, this bread is my body. It is going to be broken for you. And in doing that, here's what he says. This is the bride price I'm going to pay. I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to die for you. The bride price is established. He says, my body is going to be broken for you. I will hang on a cross. I will take all of your filthy sin onto myself, even though I don't deserve it. I will pay the price. The bride price is established. And then he takes the cup. And he pours the cup. And he says, this is my blood. It's the new covenant. Take it and drink it. And he passes it. And they take and they drink and they enter into this covenant commitment that his body will be broken. And that through the blood, they will enter into this new covenant. And this is the symbolism that's so rich when we go to communion. God has established a bride price. He has bought us from the book of our own deeds, and he has moved us to the book of life that he provides through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he has poured the cup, and he has said, drink it. Enter into my new covenant. And I'd love to tell you that just taking a drink of communion is what does that for you, but no, man, it happens here. It happens in your heart when you make the decision to surrender to and to follow Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Without Christ, you have no hope. In Christ, you have every confidence that your hope will be realized on that day. And so we're going to take communion together, and I'm just going to encourage you. Got it on your seat there. I'm going to encourage you as we do this to really think about what we're doing. To think about what's at stake. Here's my ask for you. If you, if you don't have confidence that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then there is no time like now to do business with God. We practice open communion, which means that anyone who is a follower of Jesus, who has made their commitment to Jesus, is welcome to take communion with us. Our ask is that if you are not a follower of Jesus, that, that you refrain. And the reason for that is because that's what this is. Right? We just explained it. It's saying, thank you for the bride price, for your body that's broken for me, for the sin that I have that's going on you. And I want to drink of this cup. I want to enter into this new covenant relationship with you. Right? So that's what we do. And everyone is invited to partake of that. If you're not a believer, I want to ask you to refrain. But here's what I'm asking. Why not now?
Why not now? The decision to follow Jesus is a simple decision. Now, now, listen, it causes radical life change. Your life will never be the same. And some of that will be really, really hard. And it will come with blessings from heaven. Right? But it's a simple decision to just say, you know what, Jesus? I'm done. I can't do it on my own and I'm following you. So I'm going to ask you to open. You can peel off the top layer. And man, don't you look forward to the day when we can take communion together, like do it. Until then, we're going to go with our packets. Go, go ahead and peel off the top layer. And then you can peel off the layer for the, the juice. And I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to do this together. Heavenly Father, God, we just love you so much. Thank you for paying the bride price. That your body was broken for us. And not only your body, God, but that you bore the wrath of God for all of our sins onto yourself. And thank you for the blood that ushers us into this new covenant when we commit to you and when we follow you. Father, my prayer here is that we will recognize the great lengths that you've gone so that our name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. And Father, my prayer is for anyone whose name is not, for anyone who is still trusting in their own righteousness to make them okay. Father, that the Holy Spirit will convict them in their heart of hearts and that they will surrender to you now for the first time. God, we love you and we praise you.